Amen. Thank you, Courtney. Um, hey, excited to be with you guys this morning. You know, essentially what I have to say here today is Jesus is the source of all life. We can go home now. Uh, we can pack things up. I know it took some time to get all of this set up. Uh, I'll remind myself of all you've done and the life I have because of your son. It really is the central meaning of this John 6 passage. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other source of life. It's exclusive. It's universal, but it's exclusive. It's universal, but exclusive. There's no other avenue to wholeness, no other avenue to a fulfilled life. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. If you think this claim of exclusivity is problematic, uh, I just want to say this is not like picking curtains, you know? Why do we all have to pick the orange ones, you know? That was, that's 1970s. Um, this is not like picking a name for your dog. Uh, this is fundamentally an objective truth claim. Is Jesus who he said he was? If he was, that has massive implications for our life. The creator and designer of all things showed up and showed us who he was. The one who made us on purpose, the one who designed us, revealed himself to us, showed us that there's life after death. That should change everything, or it shouldn't if it's not true. But this is the, this is the exclusive claim. And our task and our, our invitation, right, is to join the source of life and participate in the fullness of life. Uh, tomorrow we celebrate um, uh, Martin Luther King's death, and um, Rebecca and I actually had a chance to be in Memphis a couple years ago and be at the Lorraine Motel. I don't know if any of you have been there. Uh, pretty, pretty amazing to stand right there on the balcony where he was shot and killed while leaning over, telling a horn player the worship song he wanted to open up the talk that night. His foundation was not in social justice. His foundation was in Jesus. This is what drove him forward. I was in Central Park, uh, and you know, there's all these street vendors, and I, we, were at, we were in Strawberry Fields, right? And, uh, which is a little area of Central Park. And uh, John Lennon's apartment looked over the Strawberry Fields, and so, of course, you know, uh, the, the, the little garden is essentially now you know, globally famous. Um, but I, I went over and there's this little street vendor selling these buttons of all these famous people and their famous sayings. And I picked up John Lennon's button and I picked up Martin Luther King's button. And John Lennon said, imagine nothing to kill or die for. And Martin Luther King said, there comes a time when silence is betrayal. And I remember just looking at these two buttons. Nothing to live or die for. And of course, like a good New York uh, businessman, the guy working there says, just the two? You're just buying two today? You know? And I was like, you can't buy both of these. One of these people is wrong, right? <laughs> That's what I said. It's like, either there is nothing to live or die for, or there is something worth dying for. One of these people is wrong. And he said, well, it sounds like you need two of that one. You know I mean? He's, <laughs> he's not missing a beat. Uh, he knows how to make turn a dollar. Um, but, you know, MLK's, what, his imagination was not just rooted in nothing. It was rooted in a dream. It was rooted in life, you know, a fullness of life that maybe some were missing out on, or not maybe, some were missing out on because of the way that they've been treated. 
We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But as, we, as I was thinking about that and thinking about him tomorrow, I realized the significance of death in our life, um, which sounds funny to say, but there is a perspective we get on life when we think about death, you know? Um, some people talk about life flashing before their eyes, you know? My life flashed before my eyes uh, when I almost got in that car wreck or when, you know, something happened. I remember talking to my grandfather before he passed away, just maybe a month or so before he passed away, but his health was starting to fail, and I went in and talked to him. He loved sitting in this chair. He was almost, almost every time I ever saw him, he was sitting in this chair, you know, leg crossed, and I uh, loved my grandpa. And so I was just talking to him, and I noticed that he was more serious maybe than he had been, you know? And I thought that was interesting. I felt like it was an opportunity, so I just kind of was, you know, prodding him and trying to understand, you know, what's going through his brain. And all of a sudden, he starts telling me this strange story about how he and his brother wanted to be boxers. And so they, uh, he, they grew up on a dairy farm, and so they were boxing a cow, you know? And it was actually a calf. And he said that uh, they got a little out of control, and the, the calf actually passed out. And then the calf died. And they didn't know what to do, you know? And he starts crying, telling me this, you know? And he said, we wrapped it up in ropes and told our dad that the calf got, you know, tied up and something happened to the, you know? Basically, they lied and got themselves out of the situation. But I just remember him, I mean, he was confessing, you know? He was confessing. And uh, we, I left the room and I, I told him, hey, there's forgiveness, you know, in, in Jesus and these different things. And he's just crying about a, about a cow, you know, which... Yeah, and I remember my grandma, who'd been married to him for 60 years, she said, I've never heard that story, you know? There's something about that, the ultimate reality of an ending that makes the whole thing have meaning and have purpose, right? Um, the book is, there's an end to the book, and whatever idea this person is trying to sell you, it's got to wrap up, you know? We gotta get to the point. We gotta solve the problem or whatever. I don't know if you've ever had a, a near death experience or uh, something like that, but I remember I was thinking about this and when I was in college, it was during summer, all my roommates were gone. I had the apartment to myself for, for the weekend. And I remember waking up and I was so sick and I, I was nauseous um, and I was just exhausted. I didn't really know why, I you know, had the flu or something. And then all of a sudden, I was about to fall asleep. I'm like, I just gotta go back to bed. But then I got this crazy bloody nose. I'm kind of working with this bloody nose. I had it for like an hour and a half, you know, trying to figure this out. And then I like, you know, just plug it up. I'm like, I gotta go to bed. I'm gonna plug this thing up with a bunch of toilet paper and just go to bed. Right about then, my mom came in and she said, what is that gas smell? You know, the pilot light had gone out in my furnace. There's just gas pouring into the house. I was about to go to bed, you know? And I didn't realize the significance of it at the moment. But what if I had gone to sleep breathing the wrong thing, you know? There's an exclusivity to oxygen, right? It, it's, it's not rude to say, hey, the only way you can be alive is if you breathe oxygen. It's not rude. It, it's not uh, self-righteous of me to tell you that this morning. It's just an objective truth. You could try breathing something else, but it just doesn't work. Um, 
you know, my, my grandma, whose, whose husband con- was confessing this last Christmas, she, um, she throws a party every year, right? So this, this was her 100th Christmas. She throws a party every year, and uh, she gathered everybody around, and uh, which she doesn't really usually do. It's usually pizza. She gives everyone a gift, and it's, it's fun. Um, and, you know, all, like only a 100-year-old grandma can do, she's able to pull it. Everybody comes, you know. And she said, hey, I just had a few thoughts because this is my 100th Christmas, you know. And, and there were, I mean, I, I don't know how many kids there, but... 20 kids, I mean, little kids. Our son's the oldest at 13. 20 kids running around, uh, and I mean, you could have heard a pin drop for 15 minutes, as she just said. My first Christmas I can remember, I rode a sleigh in the snow to a church service on Christmas Eve, four miles. We heard the new song, Oh Holy Night. You know, <laughs> she was telling these crazy stories, and she talked about how so much has changed in a hundred years but how actually nothing at all has changed, you know? And it was so powerful. And she talked about what's the foundation for your life? And she, I mean, my family is not, they're, they're not all believers. I mean, they're not all, they, they wouldn't all necessarily agree with this message. But she's talking about what's the foundation for life, you know? Um, what does it look like to have devotion to that foundation, devotion to God? If you don't have the presence of the Holy Spirit, you don't know peace, <laughs> I mean, she's, this is, you can't argue with grandma, you know what I mean? Like, she, she's, she's 100, I mean, almost, she'll be 100 here in a couple months, and she's planning her party, I mean, yeah, anyways, um, but, um, but she talked about God's presence, how, God's, how we have the solid foundation with God's grace, his good gifts in our life, God's word, she went on and on, and then she ended her talk by saying, you know, I guess really what I'm just saying is God loves you and, and you're his child. You know, as we remember him as a child, he, you are his child. And people clap, you know. It's like, this is a Christmas party, you know. And people are clapping. And, and there's this sense of, like, that was significant. And then she took her notes and threw them in the garbage. And I went in and grabbed them. <laughs> uh, uh, but Jesus gives us this hard teaching in John 6. Uh, Zach preached on it last week. And Zach, you're a good preacher. I listened to this this week. I was like, whoa, that was awesome. If you haven't heard that, go back and listen. Because I can't, get, I can't say it all. But, but Jesus says in John 6, and, and this passage we're looking at today is the end of that. But he's saying, I'm the bread of life. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Unless you breathe oxygen, right? Um, the crowds grumbled and turned away. Then the disciples grumbled and turned away. And it kind of reminds us of Exodus and the Israelites. Freedom is at their doorstep, but they're grumbling about being back in Egypt, you know? Um, and so Jesus asked the disciples if they want to leave. And the disciples simply say to Jesus, where else would we turn, you know? Such a powerful word, turn, because it says the crowds turned away from Jesus because of his teaching. And then the disciples turned away from Jesus. And John differentiates between the crowd and the disciples and the twelve. But he says the disciples turned away and then he says to the twelve, are you going to turn away? And they say, where would we turn? You know? It's like, are you guys tired of oxygen? I am. I'm out of here. You know? Um, This is the invitation. 
it's hard. It's a hard teaching. We have the advantage of seeing this after the cross, after the resurrection. But even without seeing that, there's something that uh, the 12 know that there is words of life coming from Jesus. They can sense it. They don't know the full story. By the way, we don't either. He hasn't returned yet. But there's the sense that but this is the source of life. It is the source. Um, you know, uh, there's a funny play on words here. We won't go into it too much. But he, he talks about life in the spirit versus life in the flesh. Uh, this is a significant, significant theme in, in scripture, especially Paul hits this really heavily. And um, he's essentially saying, if you're trying to manufacture life in your flesh, it's not going to work. Um, you can't make life, you know. He's saying, but life comes in the spirit. But then biblical scholars are like, but he just said life is in his flesh. So is there life in flesh or not, right? But what he distinguishes is here is that life is actually from the spirit, and the spirit renews the flesh. And he's talking about his own resurrection. And it gets really interesting, and there's an interesting theological, biblical discussion on this. But essentially he's saying, no, life, like he says to Nicodemus in John 3, no, if you want life, it's actually not in your flesh, it's in the spirit. It's, it's actually in Christ alone. Is the, is the source of this. But many turn away, many grumble. Uh, I want to talk about this grumbling for a minute because we're pretty good at grumbling. Uh, it's a funny word, too, grumbling, you know? Um, I, I was going to like, what's the definition of grumbling? I was like, I don't actually want to know. That's a great word, uh, you know? I just want to let the imagination run wild. Uh, I thought of this uh, old um, wisdom saying that says the face of a child can say it all, especially the face, uh, the mouth part of the face. Yeah. Um, it's like we just have this way of just kind of complaining and grumbling and, you know, um, ah, this is not going how I wanted it to go. There was a pastor in California who, uh, after hearing so many complaints about church and church should have been this way and here's why we didn't come and et cetera, et cetera. He came up with the top 10 reasons people don't go to church. And then he felt it was too direct. So he changed it to the top 10 reasons people don't wash. So here's, here's what it says. I was forced to wash as a child. Okay. Um, people who wash are hypocrites. They think they're cleaner than everybody else. Um, there are so many different kinds of soap, I can't really decide which one is best. Uh, I used to wash, but it got kind of boring and I stopped. <laughs> uh, I wash, but just on special occasions like Christmas and Easter. Um, none of my friends wash, so... Uh, I start washing when I, I or sorry, I'll start washing when I get older and a little dirtier. Um, I just can't spare the time to wash. Uh, the bathroom is never warm enough in the winter or cold enough in the summer. I can't find the right environment to wash. And finally, people who make soap are really just after your money. Um, I mean, it's kind of like, oh, that's funny. Wow, that's, I think I resonate with half of those. Um, but it's this idea, you know, grumbling, it's, it's like a pressure release valve for an, an unhappy or unsatisfied heart, right? Like, it's like, well, I'm not going to do anything about this, but I'll at least let my disapproval be known. <laughs> I'll, at I'll at least let people know that this isn't what I would do, but, you know, um, it reminded me of this passage in Exodus 15. Uh, 
it says, then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea. So think of that, the Red Sea. So that just happened. And now they're walking into the desert of Shur. For three days, they traveled in the desert without finding a water source. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water there because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we supposed to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet to drink. Then, then the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all of his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, so then God led them to another place. Uh, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. And it was this interesting thing. It's like three days ago we saw a, a sea part, and now we're grumbling, not because there isn't water, but because the water's too bitter. You know, like, it's just too bitter. And I used to think this was a miraculous story, like Moses threw this stick, and all of a sudden it was like this, you know, uh, uh, LaCroix. How do you pronounce that word? <laughs> Is that right? Lacroix? I don't know. But, but it's, like, it's like, no, it's not actually a miracle. It's called tea. You take some sticks, you put it in water, and it changes the flavor. The water was fine the whole time. It wasn't poisonous. It just wasn't really to their liking. You know what I mean? Um, the Israelites were politically free, but not spiritually free. They were ungrateful. And that ungratitude kept them in slavery. They were petty uh, you know, and, and they, they just were removing themselves of the responsibility of placing themselves into the foundation of life and being able to participate in it. It's like, well, Moses is the one that's kind of creating life here. I'll sit back and critique. Um, grumbling reveals an imprisoned heart. Uh, you know, it's, it's this removal of responsibility uh, and an interruption of your comfort, Right. Because the source of life is directional. God doesn't just um, say, hey, if you will agree to these things, we're good. It's like, no, agree to these things. Now, Dr. King, go and change things. Go and, and uh, follow my lead. Because life isn't a dead end. It's, it's the beginning of a highway, right? And so when you're grumbling, you think the goal is to arrive. You think the goal is to stop, to set up camp, to settle, right? This is... This is God's frustration in, in Genesis 12, where it's like, hey, Noah and your descendants, you, you, you are now sent, full of life, go and have the entire world. And then the next verse, they settle in the valley. Everybody does. They just all stop. Because it's like, well, no, we're not supposed to go and be on mission. We're just supposed to arrive and stop. And now, as evangelicals, we said the prayer. Isn't that the whole invitation? It's like, no, that's just salvation, which is one part of the gospel. Right? That's just one part of the invitation. We're engaging with the source of life. That should produce life. You know? That should produce direction. That should produce something like changing a nation, like Martin Luther King. Yesterday, there were protests at the White House, uh, and they held, literally, I heard this on my way here to church, and I had to write it down. Um, There's protests at the White House because of Martin Luther King Day. And people were holding signs for what? Climate change, LGBTQ rights, and immigration. The three main things Dr. King stood for. Um, No, of course not. Those aren't the three things he stood for at all. Those are three things that 
people are choosing to sort of, you know, hijack his message for us, right? His message was rooted in the life of Christ. His message was rooted in this idea that we we're made in the image of God. Everybody. Uh, that we have inherent value. And he called out the Christian nation on this gross blind spot. Um, and he was right. And, and, and there was life out of that. Philippians 2, uh, 12 and six, through 16 says, uh, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Think about that. It's like, yes, you, you, you're, there's salvation in an eternal sense, but keep working it out. There's stuff in your life that is still addicted to the flesh. There's places in your life where you're stuck. There's places in you that you don't want to reveal, that you don't want to be made clean. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Not your flesh's good purpose, his purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky so long as you hold firmly to the word of life. Hold firmly to the word of life. What an invitation. And this is, this is what Jesus says, right? Earlier in John 6, um, 6, 28 and 29, when the disciples see this amazing, miraculous feeding of, of the 5,000, um, they say, what must we do? What should we do, Jesus? What are the works God requires of us? And uh, Jesus says, the work is this, to believe on the one he sent. Connect yourself to the source of life. Don't try to go do a bunch of stuff for me. I'm the source of life. <laughs> I don't know what you think you could do, right? I'm not sure what you're envisioning, but believe on the one he sent. He's the bread of life. Our task is actually to commune with God, to be present with God, to be honest with God, because in him we have life. In him we have freedom. In him we have hope. Um, because of the life-changing love we experience in him, we have no choice but to love our neighbor because we actually see how he is. His love isn't just on us, it's on everybody. We're loving our neighbor because he loves our neighbor. Once we taste and see this, how could we do anything else? Um, uh, this idea of turning away, uh, I want to I take a few minutes and jump into a section of scripture that I've always had difficulty understanding, and it's a big section, but it's, it's the Old Testament prophets. Um, you know, we, we understand the basic idea of telling a story. So when we read Genesis, it's great. We know how to read a story. We hear stories all the time. And then maybe it's a little trickier for us, but we read Psalms or, you know, the wisdom, poetry, writings, uh, genres in Scripture. And we have a sense for that, right? America's a big music country. We love music. There's always music on. We're always hearing, you know, these forms of poetry. But then we get to the prophetic writings, and it's like, where's the example of that in our culture? Like, who is saying highly symbolic, maybe even apocalyptic things that may or may not apply to today or the distant future or the near future or some end of eternity, but it's never really explained which is which, right? Like, it's like, oh yeah, we read that stuff all the time. And so when we look at the prophets, it's very difficult. One thing that was a, a light bulb for me was um, the prophets are actually like anthologies. So it's not like when you read Isaiah, it's not like one thing he said. It's like, hey, you know, eight years ago he said this, 
And then um, six years ago, he said that. We'll just put them right together. And, you know, on and on. It's, it's difficult to, to study. It requires some real work. Fortunately for us, um, we see the fulfillment of so much of that prophecy in Jesus so that when we see the prophetic writings in Revelation, we know how to sort of approach them because of, of this piece. So we have some prophecy we have to deal with in Revelation. But anyways, um, there were three indictments given by the Old Testament prophets that I want to just illuminate to us today um, that I think are really, really significant when we think about this exclusive source of life in Jesus. The Old Testament prophets really just had three messages. Um, the major prophets had all three. The minor prophets had one or two of the three, right, in their message and in their writing. And some people say the minor prophets should have been one book because it would have contained all three. But anyways, interesting stuff. The first indictment the prophets had was idolatry. Now, you think about this, it makes perfect sense. If the source of life is Jesus, but you think the source of life is something else, that's a problem. One, because you're wrong. I mean, that would be one problem. But the other problem is, um, it's not just that you're wrong, but it's that you won't find life there, right? So, um, God says, you will be my people and I will be your God. This is the fundamental promise he gives to Israel. It's the heart of the covenant, right? We are together, you know, I'm with you. I'm going to be giving you life in this, uh, in our our walk together. And then Israel, starting with the golden calf in Exodus 32, right, veers away to say, well, I know God is the ultimate source of life, but what about this golden cow? You know, it seems pretty, pretty cool, you know. Um, It's probably worth a lot. uh, And it's something we could do as a community. As a community, we can make this together, you know. So we make a golden cow. And um, God is mad about this. Why? Because there's no life in the golden cow. There's no possibility of moving forward. Idolatry at its fundamental uh, root is, is giving over to the heart's desire of the flesh. It's like the flesh wants something, and so we give ourselves over to it. It's replacing God with something else. So Israel betrays their covenant relationship with him. Uh, Numerous gods, Baal worship, you know, Asherah, um, uh, pulling into the practices of neighboring nations, and all this kind of syncretism with everyone else just so that they don't feel like they're different. But in their ability to look like everyone else, they actually lose their connection to the source of life. Real problem for us today. We idolize the same things as the culture because we don't want to stand out, maybe. Or maybe because we believe the message, the health and wealth story, right? We just really need to figure out our health stuff, and then we'll live this full life that we see every day on Instagram. Um, If we can just dial that in. If we can just get on the right side of the political aisle, we'll see massive social change, and we'll we'll finally press on into the future, or we'll finally, you know, make America great again. Because one of these things has life, right? And the other one's pure death. Um, this is the thing. It's like, no, that's, that's not the way we're approaching it. Jesus is the source of life. His kingdom is the source of fruitfulness. And so we idolize sexual experience, wealth, health, political ideology, individualism, experiences. We idolize travel. We, we idolize upholding some sort of image. Uh, or we idolize just consumption. It's like, what's the new show? Uh, what's the new place to eat? What's the new, right? That will give us life. We can just stay on top of the trends. That's what a hipster is, by the way. Anyways, um, just a side note. Uh, that's in Mark 4. No, um, uh, 
I remember reading uh, The Prodigal God by Tim Keller, and it was fascinating to me because you think to yourself, well, we don't really, we don't do idols, right? And I remember him saying that the God of the marketplace, and I don't even remember, the, I, I did zero research for this part of the sermon. The God of the marketplace, you know, and I, there was a name for that God, and everyone worshiped that God. And what did the God require? Sacrificing your children. And Tim Keller's basically like, nothing like the marketplace today, where we sacrifice our family for the pursuit of wealth, right? We have idols today. Uh, make no mistake. But the idols are the changing of the heart from the desire for God as the source of life to the desire of the best our flesh can understand as the source for life. That's indictment number one. Indictment number two is the prophet said uh, this vertical relationship with God, right, is accompanied by our horizontal relationship with one another. So if we're not understanding God as the source of life and this overwhelming, generous love that he's pouring out to us, why would we be overwhelming and generous with our love pouring out to others? So indictment number two really just flows from the first one, which is an indictment of injustice. Uh, the prophets constantly are talking about injustice. Um, you know, when Jesus says, what's the greatest commandment? Love God and love neighbor. The second one's like the first one. And uh, when we look at this, I mean, tons of Tons of language about the widow, the orphan, the alien, the poor. Uh, there's these social costs. There's these things that it's like, how can you turn a blind eye to this problem if you know where the source of life is, right? If you know where the source of life is, how could you just look away at the 10,000 orphans in Washington, you know? How could you look away at the 11,000 homeless in King County? How could you look away and we could go on and on and on and on and on? By the way... We flip then into this situation where we're like, okay, in my flesh, I'll solve that problem. It's like, no, what is the source of life? What would he have you do with this? Think of Matthew 9. He sees the people harassed and uh, scattered and just aimless. And Jesus' response when he sees these crowds isn't to go fix all their problems. He says, hey, let's pray that the Lord of the harvest would send workers to these people. I can't go work with all these people. Jesus doesn't assume he can. He says, let's pray to the Lord of Harvest because then the people going to do works of justice will actually be connected to the vine and will actually have life to offer. Otherwise, we're just doing more stuff. We're just trying to prove and trying to make life out of our flesh. Um, Deuteronomy, it's, it's actually really powerful, but I, uh, I read Deuteronomy and I, mean, um, and I, I highlighted in green... Everywhere where he talked about the poor or those in or the orphan or the widow or the alien. And I mean, there's almost not a page where there's not green. I mean, it's just everywhere. Um, and uh, one of the things I love that I'll just, this is just a, a cool insight, but he says, don't neglect your poor brother when he's hungry, you know? Um, and then a few, a few kind of stanzas later, he says, when you select a king from among your brothers, and then he goes on and talks about, but I was thinking about the interesting, that kingdom of God, like the poor person is your brother and the king is your brother. Like don't, don't think one is better than you or lower than you. Um, I'm the source of life for all of these people. All of these people are made in my image. All of these people require justice because I made them on purpose. Um, 
And so biblical justice has much more to do with being in loving relationship than just solving problems. Um, As a worker at UGM, I could talk to you about that for hours, and I won't. But I will just tell you, homelessness is not a problem. It's a symptom of broken relationships. Um, Indictment number three is is interesting. So we've got idolatry, uh, which is essentially rejecting God. Injustice, which is essentially rejecting neighbor. And then indictment number three is pretending that you're doing both. (laughs) which is religiosity, ritualism, religious ritualism. That's their third indictment. Going through the right motions without having the right heart. Um, Pretending to love God, pretending to love others, or trying to love God and others in your flesh. Um, uh, Israel thinks so many times in the prophets that if they just celebrate the feasts, if they just fast, if they just behave in a religious manner, that God will surely just be with them automatically. But they miss out on the heart of the ritual. They miss out that the, the goal of the ritual is to lead you into relationship, right? But otherwise, the ritual doesn't really do anything for you. But if you're avoiding the relationship and doing the ritual, what are you doing? <laughs> you know? Um, I, could, I could take my wife on a thousand dates, but if I don't talk to her, you know, what, what are we doing? Um, so the invitation in, uh, with religion is actually, here's the format. Every Sunday, we, we hear worship. Are we worshiping? <laughs> you know, If you're just sitting there, what are you doing? Like The purpose of this is to connect back to the source of life. The purpose of this is to retrain our heart that just there's this gravity of going back to the flesh. How do we retrain that? Um, we invert religion and ritual from forming who we are to maybe forming how we want others to perceive us. And that's a problem. Think of the widow's might. Um, so we have these three issues, idolatry, injustice, religious ritualism. There's a pattern, right? You make room in your heart for an idol. This distances you from others. Your relationships become fakey or false. And your life-giving, cup-overflowing relationship with God is replaced with lifeless pursuits that are interrupted by others, which cause you to grumble. (laughs) Does that make sense? Um, uh, Maybe this is why people leave, you know? Well, that doesn't really fit my narrative. You know, uh, in order to breathe, in order to live, I had to to breathe oxygen, right? Right? Oxygen is a universal, exclusive gas. There's no other way to be alive. Uh, I'm starting a hashtag, breathe oxygen now. Um, No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, But I was thinking of that, I I was thinking of it as I was writing this out, I thought, how significant, don't fall asleep while breathing the wrong thing, (laughs) right? We just get sort of lulled to sleep through all this stuff. And then what happens? Thank goodness God sent my mom into the house, you know? I I mean, I consider that a miracle, actually, that that happened. Um, The prophet's fundamental response to these three things is repent. Like, idolatry, injustice, ritualism, repent. What does repent mean? Turn. (laughs) Turn around. Turn back. Come back to the source of life. 
John 1, 4 and 5, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. This is the source of life. He is the actual place where we can find rest and hope and peace and mission and meaning and all of these things. Death gives us his perspective and Jesus died. <laughs> Jesus actually died. Jesus actually conquered death and gave us a perspective we've never had. Not just a, I guess I should do something with my life because it ends. That's significant. But actually, here's a unique uh, addition to that. Actually, it doesn't end, which makes it even more meaningful. You know, Jesus says, this is how much I love you. And he lays down his life for us. And so we, this, this deeply meaningful aspect of death, we get to do it twice as Christians, right? We get to die twice. Once now, dying to the flesh and, and engaging and connecting ourselves to uh, the life in Christ. And then, of course, once in an ultimate sense, when we go to be present, absent from the body, but present with the Lord. Um, so uh, I wanted to read a, a letter to you. Just take a minute or two. Um, Francis, maybe some of you remember Francis Schaeffer. Um, he was an evangelical leader and... Um, he and his wife, Edith, were, you know, writing books and, and doing all these kind of, all of these things and, and making a big splash in the evangelical world. And he wrote this famous book, Now How Shall We Live? If this gospel is true, how should we live? Well, his son, Frank, um, eventually rejected all of this. Um, he rejected all of this. He became an atheist, started writing atheist books, and he rejected this source of life. And then his mom dies at 99, <laughs> right? And he's confronted with, okay, was my mom's life connected to a true source of life? And he said, my mother read to me and introduced me to Shakespeare, Louisa May Alcott, Jane Austen, Anne Bront, uh, uh, Susan Fenimore Cooper, em Emily Dixonson, and on and on, A.A. Mill. Uh, they are still my friends and companions, and I've made them my children's and grandchildren's friends too. And this is my tribute to her example. And he goes on, he tells all of these stories. Here's what my mother showed me to do by example. Forgive, ask for forgiveness, cook something, paint something, build something, garden, draw, read, keep the house well, travel, go to Italy, <laughs> love God, love New York City, love Shakespeare, love uh, Dickens, love Jesus, love silence, love people more than anything, love community, put career and money last in the hierarchy of your values. And above all, love beauty. I still follow my mother's example as best I can and have passed, uh, and I have passed and am passing her life gift to my children and grandchildren, not in words, but in meals cooked, gardens, gardens kept, houses built, promises kept, sacrifices made, beauty pointed to. And he goes on and on about the books his mom read him, about how his mom taught him that sex is actually good. <laughs> and he goes on and on saying all these different things um, and then he says, I never say I love you anymore to my wife or my children, uh, to my son-in-law, my daughter-in-law, to my grandchildren, and he names them all. He says, without remembering who showed me what these words actually mean. Mother was a force to be reckoned with, an energetic universe contained in one little tiny trim female frame, and she used that force entirely for good. I'm still thinking of mom's eternal life in her terms because she showed me the way to that hope 
through her consistency, and she won. Her example defeated my cynicism. I miss her voice. I learned to trust that voice because of the life that backed it up. I know I'll hear her voice again. You won, Mom, I now believe. Isn't that amazing? That source of life isn't just for us to get to salvation. We become light, we become salt. And so today, as we, as we approach communion, um, I mean, this is the fundamental invitation of communion. This is the fundamental activity that we participate in. Is this your source of life? <laughs> if it is, put it inside, swallow it, chew it up, drink it down. Let it feed you. Let it sustain you. Um, that's, that's what I love about it. It's, it's actual food and drink, you know? This do in remembrance of me. Um, Paul warns us, though, that when we go to remember Christ, we remember his death and the significance that gives us, he says, when you do this, be careful. He warns us, actually. Don't do this without examining your heart. Because if your heart is saying, well, my source of life is actually over here, but yeah, I'll drink this juice and eat this stuff, it's fine. I don't want to look weird Sunday, you know? He says you will actually heap judgment on yourself. <laughs> that's, that's a significant statement that he makes. He says, examine your heart. So I invite you to do that. As, we're, as the, the worship team can come up, I'm going to close this in prayer, but I'm going to invite you guys to do something. Examine your heart. Is there an idol there? Is there a gravity of flesh that you need to confront? Is there an injustice in your relationships? Um, is there a falsity in your life that needs to be confronted? And I'll just say the reason that we are here together and not just doing this sort of on the internet is because we actually need each other in this process. And so it says confess our sins to one another, bear one another's burdens. This is the invitation. This is why we need the body of Christ. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. And so with that in mind, I want you to know there's people over here who are ready to pray with you. When you examine your heart, you know what? One of the best things you can do is say it out loud to somebody. And let someone remind you of the depth of God's grace. Remind you of the, of the overflowing fountain. Uh, what I love about that idea of Moses going out in the desert is there's mirages in the desert. <laughs> you look and you think there's a source of life, and you keep walking toward it, but it just kind of keeps going away. And you just keep walking towards it, and eventually there will be life here, right? But there isn't. It's called a mirage. But there are oases in the desert. But the only way an oasis makes it in the desert is if there's a source of water. That's what brings life to the desert. And so we invite you to commune with the source of life this morning, but first examine your heart. And uh, let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much. Uh, for the opportunity and the invitation to eat your flesh and drink your blood, which sounds so extreme and sounds so intense that some of us are like, whoa, I, I, I feel like turning away. But Lord, may we be like the disciples and, and take an honest look around us and say, turn away from what? Lord, we thank you that you are, um, that you love us. We thank you that you are the source of all things that are good, that are true, that you're the way, truth, and life. Lord, we pray that we would acknowledge your claim to be the bread of life this morning. And so, Lord, may, may you cleanse us, may you reveal to us anything that needs to go, and may we let it go freely so that we can